Well, we have the marvelous opportunity this morning to dramatize the death of our Lord in the Lord's Supper. We will break the bread between our teeth, much like Jesus' body was broken by nails and wounds. We'll also have the opportunity to spill His blood as if we were crucifying Him by drinking of the cup. If you are converted this morning, if you're converted by His power and to His church and by His grace, you're invited to come. You'd have to examine your own conscience and be your own judge. The Scripture's very intense on that. But if you are, you are invited to come this morning. The Apostle Paul was someone who could come. In Acts chapter 9, we read of his conversion. Luke records this three times, in fact. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. And Paul speaks of it often. In fact, because of the frequency with which Paul's conversion appears in the biblical text, it's rather clear that it is a model conversion. The details may be different. I was not saved or converted myself on the Damascus Road as a result of the blinding light, but the same grace of God met me. And the same grace of God met you, if you're converted. The same result as well. Converted to and by His power and converted to His church and converted by His grace. That's all the same. In fact, I would say to you, the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, the great heroes of the Christian faith, have nothing on or over you. We are called to Jesus Christ with a like precious faith, according to Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. A like, precious faith. The same Jesus, the same grace, the same promises given to every child of God, anyone who repents and believes the gospel. It's all the same. And Paul then was converted. L. Scarborough noted that Paul called himself the chief of sinners. We call him the chief of saints as a result. Dr. Criswell said that Paul's conversion was like converting or winning an army. It was like winning a whole nation. Everything is different because Paul came to Jesus. Outside the death and the resurrection of Christ, there really is no more significant conversion in the history of the Christian faith than the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Many would argue. Conversion means a change for the better. Some of you have restored some vehicles. You've converted them. They're better. Many of you have converted your homes and your kitchens and other rooms in your home. Even some things on the outside. They are for the better. And by recording Paul's conversion three times, then Luke elevates it as a model conversion. And there's some areas that Paul was converted in, where he was converted. One, he was converted in his hands. Chapter 9 Verses 1 through 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, an early name for the Christian church, the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In verse 20, it says, Instead, by the time he got to Damascus, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. He went to Damascus with the intention of arresting, imprisoning, and setting on trial Christians in the synagogues. 
But when he arrived at Damascus, he began preaching Christ. What he put his hands to changed radically in his life. Michael Novak, 10 years ago when the New Atheist Movement hit the nation in the Western world with such ferocity, he wrote that their attitude is that the sweet air of liberty, he said, must be replaced with a gas that detects, exterminates, and suffocates any breath that would expel a religious word in public life. Publicly, the atheist said, religion must be totally suppressed so that only the atheists are comfortable with our culture. The accommodation, he said, that this nation reached long ago between believers and unbelievers must be abandoned. Religion must be banned from all public appearances under government auspices until it's totally squeezed down into private life underground like it is in communist China. That's where they were going with it. That was the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, but by the time we arrive at verse 20, he's doing the exact opposite. He's preaching Jesus. The Damascus Christians saw him approaching Damascus as their worst nightmare, but by the time he arrived, he was their greatest champion. He was converted. Change, excuse me, conversion worked a change in the work of Paul's hands, but not only his hands, but also his mind. In verses 3 through 5, Does it ever amaze you what goes through some people's minds? The warning labels on products can expose what some people are thinking. A propane torch has a warning label that says, Never use while sleeping. A clothing iron has a warning label on it that says, Do not use while wearing clothes. There are some house slippers with a warning that says, do not eat. I don't know if the dog is supposed to read that or what, but there are some people, that does, has it occurred to you, some people are not working at full capacity, maybe a few french fries short of a happy meal, indeed. Paul was much the same. Paul should have been able to extrapolate from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ But his thinking and thought was not working well. In fact, the Apostle Paul had no room in his thinking for the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the role of the church in life, in the kingdom of God. But in verse number 4, after the blinding light came to him in verse 3, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Kyrios. The ancient first century Greek word, for Lord. And then the Lord said to him, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus identified himself and Paul referred to him as Lord. And immediately, Paul opened himself up to the deity of Christ and the Trinity. When Christ comes into the heart and life, he rearranges the furniture in the brain. In the mind, Paul's beliefs became thoroughly orthodox and the fundamental basis of New Testament faith. Ladies and gentlemen, God can turn atheists into Bible scholars and the faith's most bitter opponents into gospel preachers. He's able to do it. He did it with Paul. But he also converted his feet in verses 13 through 22. Paul received a call from God in verse 15. And the church confirmed it. Anytime God calls someone to ministry, the church knows about it. They can see those gifts. 
They can see the power, the impact, the hand of God upon that life. It may be a surprise at first. It sure was for my church. But as time goes on and they have the opportunity to demonstrate ministry and involve themselves in it, it's obvious that God's hand is upon the one that God has called. Not only that, but also His fruit in verses 20 through 22. He was fruitful. Things happened. People were converted and turned to Christ. And in verse number 15, we find Paul's call. He said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. God converts sinners to make them servants. He blesses us to bless others. He wins us to win others. God is an outreach God. That is His fundamental, essential nature. And He implants that nature into everyone who's come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as Charles Spurgeon said, you're either a missionary or an imposter. And I think he's entirely true, and Paul proves it. He also converted, finally, his heart in verses 20 through 31. Paul ended up with a heart for the world. That's stunning because Paul had enormous suspicion of the world outside of him. Verse 20 says he preached Christ in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. The world got onto his heart so that he risked his life. In fact, soon after his conversion, they wanted to kill him. So they had to let him out of a basket over a wall to leave Damascus to get back to his home. So he had a heart for the world by later in his ministry by 2 Corinthians 5:14 he's saying that the love of Christ compels me. He also has a heart for the church verse 21. All who were heard were amazed and said, "Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priest?" Yes, indeed he came for that purpose, but later he's the very one that wrote the love chapter about how much he loved the church. And then he has a heart for mentors. Verses 26 to 27, he is found in the company of Barnabas. Now that's remarkable. Barnabas vouches for him with the Jerusalem church, introduces him there and says, this man's conversion is legitimate. I stand by him despite everything that he's done in his past. He's a changed man. God has changed him. Christ met him and has converted him and turned him around. Now that's remarkable because his earlier mentor, Gamaliel, had counseled moderation with the Christian movement. But Paul didn't follow it. Instead, he breathed threats, and he breathed murder, and he breathed uh, arrest and persecution against the church of God. He dismissed Gamaliel's advice. He left off Gamaliel, broke his relationship with him, and God was gracious enough to give him another mentor in Barnabas. When God converts us in Jesus Christ, He converts the totality of our lives. Not only our vertical standing with God and our walk with Him, but also our horizontal relationships. When it gets right with God this way vertically, it gets right with God this way horizontally as well. And that's a marvelous test of how sincere our faith happens to be. So I want to ask and answer this question this morning. What happens when Jesus Christ converts us? Well, first, Jesus converts us to His power. When Jesus converts us, He converts us by His power and to His power. And what a remarkable story Paul's life is. Only the power of God could change him from being their worst nightmare to their greatest champion. So never write off anyone that is away from Jesus Christ. 
Never write off a husband who doesn't know the Lord. Never write off a wife who is yet to come to Christ. Never write off a child, uh, young or adult. Never write off someone bound up in a cult. Never write up off anyone who has descended into crass levels of depravity. Never write off a neighbor. Never write off a heretic. Jesus Christ is able to convert anyone. If he converted the Apostle Paul, he can convert those that are on your heart as well. And if Christ has converted you by his power, come to his table this morning. So he converts us to his power, but he also converts us for his church. I've hesitated to tell you this story because I don't want you to think I'm engaging in any chest thumping or bravado. I don't have many stories like this. In fact, what I'm about to tell you did not happen before it happened and it hasn't happened since. But it illustrates powerfully what I want to read to you in verse number four. Sherry Michelle and I were working some youth camps years ago, and she was teaching a study in the afternoons. And she had a session on the difference between men and women. You all know they're different, don't you? Just checking. And she um, taught on that, and it annoyed a particular minister in the group. In fact, it annoyed him so badly, he climbed all over her after it was over and traumatized her. And she got back to our apartment and broke down and wept in heaves and sobs. And I listened to her and talked with her a little bit and consoled her. And when she was consoled, I stood up and walked out of the door quietly. I don't know if I told her what I was going to go do, but I went to look for the man. And I wanted to make sure I understood what happened. I didn't want to rush to any judgments. But there was also an enormous, overwhelming sense that this fellow is going to be here the rest of the week, and I sure don't want him traumatizing my wife again. I couldn't put her through that. Now, there are some who think that ministers' wives are to go through that kind of trauma and just put up with it. I'm not in that number. Never have been. That doesn't no excuse for obnoxiousness or rudeness. But I did want to make sure I understood what was taking place and there was a mistake made, we could fix it. But I, I found him. And I said, you know, I sure am sorry there was some confusion in the study time today with uh, my wife, and I, I want to see if I can help. Is there anything I can do? Well, he launched into a tirade about how awful her views were and how narrow she was and, all, and proceeded to criticize her. And I said, you know, it's okay if you have a different view. In fact, maybe we can benefit from it, and you can teach us. And and we, we can listen. Maybe we could mutually benefit. Well, he wouldn't have any of it. He just wanted to pile on about how awful she was. Well, he wasn't getting the message. And I was fearful that he would launch on her the next day. And the view that Sherry Michelle was sharing was entirely legitimate and, and very useful and very helpful, in fact. And so I did something that I haven't had to do since then. I took a step towards this uh, effeminate little man. Well, I shouldn't have said that. I took a step towards this sissy man, and, and I, I, I bent down and I lowered my voice, made it, put a little more bass into it, and I said, it's okay if you disagree, but don't you ever traumatize my wife again. If we need to put you into a different study in the afternoon, that's okay. And, and we want to be as friends as much as we can be. But don't you ever make her weep and cry again. And I hope I'm clear. Well, he 
turned around and walked off, and I did too. Our supervisor from Nashville happened to be on the camp that week. They would rotate around, and he went and found my supervisor and complained about me. And so my supervisor came to me. And I think he expected me to put up with that kind of bully behavior and abuse that he launched on my wife. And I wasn't going to have it from him either. And I said, Art, that isn't going to happen here. If I need to resign, and if we need to go back to Texas, we will. But the truth is, I'm not going to put up with that kind of bully behavior. And we're not going to do that. If we can help and learn and grow together, that's okay. But you're out of place chastising me for this. You need to go chastise him or send him home, one or the other. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't want you to be terribly impressed with uh, that. I, I'm, I'm not trying to beat my chest or show you how much bravado I have. Um, frankly, it was like the time I was on a basketball court with six-year-old kids with an eight-foot basket, and I dunked on them all, you know. That, that's about how it was. So it's not really that impressive. But what amazed me in that experience was the ferocious loyalty that welled up in me for my bride. Many of you men have felt that. And that's what I read of in verse number 4 of chapter 9. Saul is going to arrest and persecute the Christians in Damascus, and it catches the attention of Jesus. In verse number 4, when Jesus met him with the blinding light in verse 3, Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Now, is that what it says? It says instead, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took it personally. Jesus, because he is vitally, intimately, eternally connected with his people, felt Paul's abuse and bully tactics on the church of Jesus Christ as much as a man would take it personally if his wife was under assault. Jesus is vitally, intimately, loyally, strongly, eternally connected with his church. And when He converts us, He converts us to Himself, which includes the totality of the body of Christ. It includes the church. Touch a Christian or church and you touch Him. Maybe His arm, maybe a shoulder. So conversion involves a turning to the church of Christ. And where there is no love for the church, we are justified in being suspicious of a, of a profession of faith. Where there is love for the church there is most likely a conversion to Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ has converted you to His church, come to His table today. But Jesus not only converts us by His power and to His church, but He converts us by His grace. The Apostle Paul, Saul, before his conversion, was the least likely candidate for conversion. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, he said, I made havoc, or Luke says of him, that Paul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He says of himself in Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and the women 
which was unheard of. And then Acts 26, verses 10 and 11, he said, Many of the saints I shut up in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. He's going to Damascus, which is 150 miles from Jerusalem with a very difficult journey. How does a vicious man like this transform into someone who has the favor of God in his standing and in his life? How can a man filled with unqualified evil ever obtain forgiveness? Well, I've got good news for you. There's a God in heaven who's full of enough grace to forgive even people like the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul would later reflect on this in Romans 5.21, and he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other, in other words, God measures our sin, and then he takes that same measure and extends the measure and exceeds the measure of sin and uh, accumulates grace and applies it to the sin so that every time someone comes to Jesus Christ, there is more grace for the sinner than what he or she has sinned. God has more grace than you will ever need. He is more holy than you've ever imagined, but he's more gracious than you'll ever need. There's nothing you've ever done that cannot be covered by God's grace. He saves us by his grace whenever we repent and trust Christ alone. The Goshak Syndicate, an insurance company in Britain, a number of years ago had to sue Buena Vista Entertainment. Buena Vista Entertainment was the producer of the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The game show originated in England, and the folk there did not win many prizes, so Goshak Syndicate was comfortable insuring the game show. There weren't many claims because not many Brits were answering the questions and winning prizes. But apparently the questions got easier when they got to America. You know, everything's easier in America, amen? But in any case, when they arrived here, there were many others that were winning. And Goshak Syndicate then sued Buena Vista Entertainment for all the prizes that they were giving out because they felt like Buena Vista Entertainment and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was far too generous. May I say to you, God has never made that complaint. God has never made the complaint that those coming to Him expect Him to be too generous. You can bring what embarrasses you, what has broken you, what has shamed you, what has uh, annihilated your reputation with your family, the public, the things that you worry about in private, the worst thing that you've ever done, which you just thought of a moment ago. God would never complain that you're expecting Him to be too generous if you were to repent and embrace Christ alone as your hope. God doesn't level suits against those who need Him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, having sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And so there are three confessions that you need to make today to come to Christ and to come to His table. One, I need abundant grace. My sins are piled up to the heavens and they smell there. In fact, if sin had a smell, the world couldn't stand me. I'm guilty before God. I'm guilty. I violated His law. And that's where the good news begins. 
The good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news of sin. I violated God's law. Romans 3.23 says what, church? All have sinned. So I need abundant grace, but that's not all. You come with the confession, I trust abundant grace. I really do believe God is that generous. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, the apostle would later say. And that is indeed the case. God is gracious enough to merit your trust. In fact, it is an unspeakable evil not to trust God. A God that would give His Son to bleed and die for you and then raise Him from the dead is worthy of the trust of the whole earth beginning in this place today. I need abundant grace. I trust abundant grace. But the third item, I'm coming to collect abundant grace. Come. Come to Him. Turn your heart to Him. And He says, come collect it. It's yours. If you'll repudiate and turn away anything that keeps you from trusting my grace, and if you will trust me alone, by virtue of the death and resurrection of my Son, you can come collect. You can come to me. It's there for you. It's there for the taking. Come, claim, and collect my grace. Would you do that now? All so many have come before you. You've waited long enough. It's time to turn it all over to Him. Yes, we're speaking to you. Come and give it all to Him. Come follow His will, His gracious will. Come follow His gracious Son. Come to Him today. Don't delay. Abundant grace awaits you. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Thank you, gracious God, for this model conversion. Thank you for our conversion and the hope that others can be converted today as well. I know, dear Lord, the details are different. Some of us were converted in a church service like this, some in a revival service, some in the evening, some in the morning. But you gave us the same grace, you gave this great apostle, and the same result. Thank you for the miracle that has happened in our lives and for the miracles that are about to happen all around us. And oh God, keep us mindful of these great gifts as we remember and respond to the passion of your Son. We're going to sing and staff is going to be here up the front. We're going to ask you to come. Share your spiritual need. And we're going to help you all that we can. So many have come before you. This is a great day to do it. It's the best day. Come now as Tim leads us.